0: If you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 5 today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's no problem. We're going to have the text up on the screen. Uh, you'll have the text below you uh, if you're watching from home. Uh, and also, if you download our app, uh, we have the Bible uh, listed there on our app as well. Uh, we're going to be looking at all of chapter 5. I'm not going to read all of chapter 5 because it's lengthy. What I'll do is I'm going to read through verse 9, paraphrase some, paraphrase the middle section, and then pick back up with verse 19 through the end of the chapter. So with that being said, please hear the word of the Lord. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, "'Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, "'let my people go, "'that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness.' "'But Pharaoh said, "'Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice "'and let Israel go?' "'I do not know the Lord, "'and moreover I will not let Israel go.' Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past, but let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them and you shall by no means reduce it for their idol. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer a sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Now, at this point, uh, the foremen of Pharaoh uh, do just this. They follow his commands. They take the straw away. Israel is complaining, uh, and then they are beaten for it. So after all this beating, things are getting really bad here. We pick up in 19. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Things are going from bad to worse here for Moses and Israel. So a pastor friend of mine shares this story about this Christian couple. Uh, He changed their names to Tim and Sarah. I don't think there's a couple here named Tim and Sarah who are married or engaged, so don't think I'm talking about them if that person exists. If you're watching at home, you're Tim and Sarah. I'm not talking about you. So with all that being said, Tim and Sarah were um, engaged. They were young Christians uh, in their faith. They were old enough to get married. So uh, they're going through their engagement process. They move through uh, onto their wedding day, and they get married. Several years go by, and as the Lord is growing, Tim and Sarah, in their faith, uh, Sarah starts to become nagged by some past sins that she has never uh, told her husband about. So years have gone by, and she's carrying this burden with her. And what she hasn't told Tim is that when they were engaged early on, she had a series of affairs with various men before they got married. She kept that secret to herself. She buried it down, she compartmentalized it. She white knuckled her way through several years until the Lord grew her to a point. She's like, I just can't bear this anymore. She felt the need to come clean, that feeling of being exposed for who you really are, opening up your hearts and your sin to someone, and then being vulnerable and wondering how they're going to respond. So Sarah comes to Tim, so one afternoon, they sit down in the living room, and she tells Tim everything that she had done. All the encounters, all the hiding, all the lying, and it's at this point in her tears where Tim breaks down. He's undone. He's weeping. He's shocked. Words can't express the way that he is feeling right now in this moment, so he does what is natural. He needs to Uh, remove himself from the situation and just process what's happening. So Tim leaves Sarah there on the living room floor. Tim goes off and drives away, and Sarah is left in the living room in a puddle of tears with all of her shame, with all of her sin, with all of her sadness, feeling, have I sinned so much to destroy this relationship? Am I too far gone because of my sin? Will Tim ever love me again? What's going to happen to my life? Am I too far gone for his love? That's right where we find Israel. This is right where we find Moses and Israel as they are experiencing life with their sin and their situation Their sin is building inside of them. Their outside pressure from Pharaoh and the beatings that they're experiencing is causing them to question their relationship with God. They start to, to, in their disobedience and anger, think of their relationship with God as one as a contract and not a covenant. I do blank and God does blank. They're, They're thinking their relationship with God is like this. And when they misunderstand that relationship in such a way, When this pain intensifies, they respond to God in two ways. One is disobedience, and the other is rage. So misunderstanding how God loves them calls them to respond to God in disobedience and rage when things aren't going their way. And for all of us here this morning, as we dive into this text, I want you to ask yourself right where you are, when my sin is very present before me, And when life isn't going the way that I thought it would, maybe even when life is ratcheting down on me and things are very painful, how do I respond to God? I pray for all of us that we would respond the opposite of Moses and Israel. I pray that we would learn from Moses and Israel what not to do in this text today. So let's turn to the text in verses one through three we learn how seeing God's love as a contract instead of a covenant leads to disobedience. It's here where Moses and Aaron have come off a little bit of hot streak from success from back in chapter four. Back in chapter four, they've encountered God. The the leaders were together. The church was together. Uh, God performed miracles at the hands of Moses. He turned his stick into a snake, and then the hand was leprous, and all these awesome miracles happening. And even at the end of chapter four, we see the people were together and they bowed their heads and worshiped. Even in the midst of their difficult situation, their eyes were fixed on God and they were worshiping, but something has happened. This momentary success has actually caused them to sin against God. This momentary success gave Moses and Aaron a big head. It made them arrogant, and they made two crucial mistakes here. Well, what were these mistakes? Well, if you notice, in verse 1, Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh alone. Now, that might not seem like a big deal on the surface, But if you think back to chapter three and verse 18, God gives very clear instructions to Moses and Aaron about how they were to approach them. He tells Moses and Israel, you two with all of the elders, you all go and approach Pharaoh. Who shows up to meet Pharaoh here? Moses and Aaron alone. Fail number one, disobedience right here at the beginning of the text. This is outright disobedience, but it doesn't end there. After God tells Moses and Aaron and all of the Israel uh, leaders to go to Pharaoh, he instructs them to say this The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go on a three day journey to the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. How does Moses and Aaron respond to Pharaoh in this text? They say, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Mistake number two, epic mistake. In the Hebrew, this is basically Moses uh, coming to Pharaoh, digging his heels in, bowing his chest up and saying, let my people go. And this is Not what God instructed him to do. He got a big head and he came in there real hot, shouting orders. That's not what God has called them to do. How in the world do you think Pharaoh would respond to this? Pharaoh replies, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord and I'm not gonna let Israel go. And here you can just envision Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh and coming in all hot-headed and big-headed, and then Pharaoh just shutting them down right there in their face, and then they just turn in and just get sheepish. Listen to to their response in verse three. They say, but if you won't let us go, God's gonna fall upon us with pestilence or the sword. What a slap in the face to God that is. This is utter disrespect against the character of God. Think about all God has done for Moses and Aaron up to this point. God has been gracious and loving and kind. He's been patient with Moses and all of his doubts. He's even provided Aaron to help with his insecurities. God has appeared to them and done all these wonders, and this is how Moses responds. Gosh, that's painful what we have here is a prime example of how sin and hardship distorts our view of who God really is. It distorts our view of God's love. On one hand, Moses and Aaron had a little bit of success and that success turned them into an arrogant bully. Yeah, I know God told me to say it this way, but I'm gonna do it my own way that suits my own needs. On the other hand, when adversity comes, Moses became sheepish. Moses became scared. He lost that sense of security that God can provide, and then he throws God under the bus like some petulant adolescent deity. Tim Keller has a great quote about this. He says this, we need to remember that we're saved by grace when we fail. At this point, we'd be like, yes, that's not really that good of a quote. Here it goes, though. But we need to remember it much more when we succeed. We need grace when we fail. Yes, we need grace when we succeed. And this is so true of Moses and Israel and for all of us. How often... When we experience times of success, we forget that all of that comes from the covenant loving hand of God and we start thinking to ourselves, man, I'm doing really well in life. Morally, I'm knocking this thing out of the park. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying and look at my life. God is blessing me. All that is is contract-based love. That's a contract-based relationship where I do my end of the bargain and God, you better do your end of the bargain or else I'm gonna be really upset at you. What happens on the other side of that? If we understand God's love as a contract when adversity hits or when we fail... We can malign God's character like he is out to get us if we mess up. Oh, I've sinned really bad. Therefore, God on his end of the contract has got to punish me. I've sinned. God's going to get me. Both of these extremes completely miss the mark about who God is, completely miss, that, uh, miss his covenant love, and they're both crushing. They're both crushing to us. I saw this uh, in an example I was reading. Uh, in October of 2005, there was a convicted murderer in a Romanian prison who brought a lawsuit against God because life didn't go the way he planned it to be. The guy in the suit, his name was Pavel M., and listen to what he says in his lawsuit. He's requesting legal action against God, resident in heaven, for committing the following crimes. Cheating, cheating, concealment, abuse against people's interests, taking bribes, and trafficking of influence. He goes on to say that God even claimed and received from me various goods and prayers in exchange for forgiveness and the promise that I would be rid of problems and have a better life. Now, that's ridiculous. His lawsuit was thrown out, of course, But what this does, it highlights for us a a very um, examining question, kind of like an x-ray to our own hearts. We think that's pretty ridiculous and hilarious, but ask yourself, has life or a situation not gone your way and you put God on trial? Have you assumed that because you didn't do certain things in your end of the contract that God's just... Out to get you. You may have assumed that um, if you don't take your life into your own hands, if things are spiraling out around you, all around, and if you don't take take control by yourself, that God's somehow going to destroy your life that you're gonna do a better job than God can because when God gets his hands on things, things start falling apart. If you've been there, I have. If you've been there, I would encourage you to do something that Moses and Israel is not doing here. What they are not doing is looking back at all the ways that God has provided for them. They are not looking back at the past grace that God has shown them. Because if they would reflect on God's past grace, they would see in my momentary affliction, his grace will sustain me. And no matter what comes in the future, God's future grace is gonna be there because God has proved it time and time again. We see Moses and Israel needing to reflect on the story of what God has done for them. The book of Exodus tells us how God, a holy God loves an unholy people perfectly. God doesn't choose and love Israel because they're going to love them back. He doesn't. God loves these people because he is love. God loves them because he's love. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But Moses and Aaron... They miss this. Israel, because of their sin and pain, they miss this. And what it does is it causes them to put their blinders on and to focus on the problem. And they can't look up and see that God is sovereign and loving and for them in the midst of their pain. And what this does is it causes their situation to go from bad to worse. It goes from bad to worse. So how do God's people act when their sin rises up and the pressures of the world are pressing in and punishing them all around? They misunderstand God's love as a contract instead of a covenant, and it called them to be disobedient, but now we're gonna see it gets worse. It causes them to rage against God. So after Moses and Aaron leave out from Pharaoh's presence, after Pharaoh has basically shut them down, uh, Pharaoh then he he gives them the provision. He says, "All right, uh, because uh, you're being ridiculous, Israel. Not only am I going to require you to make the same amount of bricks, but I'm also going to take your straw from you. You're going to have to go get the straw, and you're also going to have to continue uh, with the same quota of bricks. As they fail, they're beaten." this real physical pain, this emotional pain, it causes them to forget how God has actually promised them deliverance. God promised them deliverance. And now their pain is causing them to rage against Moses and Aaron and God. Look at verses 20 and 21. We see the pain of their suffering. It hardens them, doesn't soften them, it doesn't make them cling to God more. It actually hardens them. And in their rage, they lash out at Moses and Aaron. Notice their words here. They say, The Lord judge you. They use God's family name and associate the first thing with it with judgment not love, not compassion, but judgment. You made us stink. You're causing us to be killed. That's rough. Sin is progressing here. Their suffering is harding them. It's actually causing God's people to turn on the messengers and not on Pharaoh, who's the one who's actually trying to kill them. Pharaoh is the reason that they're in slavery. Pharaoh is the one trying to destroy them. There is massive irony here. The irony here is that Pharaoh, who thinks he's a god, is interacting with Israel on a contract-based relationship. You are not holding up your end of the bargain. Therefore, I'm going to punish you. Pharaoh does not care about their burdens. He tells them to get back to their burdens, to stop whining. He wants to destroy them. The text here is showing that Pharaoh is the exact antithesis of God. He is the polar opposite of God. But sadly for Israel, sadly for Moses, sadly for them, this disobedience and rage continues to boil and stew like a crock pot inside of them. It starts to boil over and all of it leads to absolute rage against God. And this is a problem that didn't just exist in the ancient Near East. This happens today by very well-educated people. Christopher Hitchens is a, Prolific writer, he does uh, not believe in God. He he's written a lot of books that take shots at God, and he says this in one of his books. He said, "I think it would be rather awful if it was true that God exists. If there was a permanent, total, round-the-clock divine supervision and invigilation of everything you did, you would never have a waking or sleeping moment when you weren't being watched and controlled." and supervised by some celestial entity from the moment of your conception to the moment of your death. He finishes the quote by saying, it would be like living in North Korea. And guess what? If this is how you understand God as contract-based only, this is the correct logical outworking of that belief system." This is the logical outworking of when your sin and suffering causes you to understand God's relationship to you as a contract. You see, we're all aware of our sins and failures. And if God's love is purely contractual based on your perfect performance, then the only thing left for you is that deity crushing you. But God's love is not contractual. God's love is a covenantal love. This covenant love springs from his own mercy. God's covenant love says, I'm going to bind myself to you. I am going to love you. I'm going to care for you despite your sins. No matter what you can throw at me, I'm going to love you perfectly. Not only that, I'm going to love you so much that I'm going to pay for your sins, You will never be able to pay for them. I'm going to take your sins on myself because I love you more than you'll ever know. That love, that understanding of who God has revealed himself to be in the scriptures is exactly what Hitchens is missing and exactly what Israel is missing. What they are doing is they are taking their sin and their painful circumstances and they are projecting that onto God and creating a God in their own mind for who he is based on the circumstances instead of trusting in God's covenant love and letting him dictate your painful circumstances. This is their fatal flaw. They're taking their experience and they're creating a God in their own mind. The question at this point in the text is, well, how's Moses gonna respond to all this? How's Moses gonna respond? Things are painful. Israel's turning against Moses. His leadership is failing. What's Moses gonna do? Will he trust in God's covenant love? Will he trust in his sovereign care for his people? Or will he do the opposite and respond in rage? Shocker, he responds in rage. Look at verses 23 and 23. It's here where Moses rages at God and accuses God of doing evil. He questions God's judgment. And then he tries to help God understand that things would be better if God wasn't involved. How gracious of Moses to to reveal to God how he should be acting, right? Right? Moses is essentially saying, God, you gave me a job to do. I did it, and you aren't keeping up with your end of the bargain. You and Pharaoh actually aren't much different from each other. You're both killing us, God. We see that in sometimes subtle ways in our own hearts, maybe in ways that we don't want to admit to other people. And sometimes we get so upset in our rage that we do actually lash out at God. You know, God, I'm praying with my child. Uh, They're going to college. they are going into high school. I'm praying with them. I've read the Bible to them their whole lives. I've tried to bring them to church. And Father, they want nothing to do to me. The more I pursue them in the love that you've shown me, the further I'm pushing uh, them away from me. God, what are you doing? It's like you're taking my straw away from me, God. You're making it worse, God. God, you've told me to be a servant at work. I'm doing it. I'm loving my boss. I'm loving my coworkers. Yet they continue to gossip about me. They think I'm a pushover. They malign my character. God, it's like you're taking my straw away from me. What are you doing, God? God, I've got this cloud of sadness that hangs over me. I don't know what to do with it. Nothing in my life is wrong, but I'm sad and I'm worried. Why are you making me suffer this way, God? It's like you're taking the straw away from me and I can't make my bricks. I can't live my life. What are you doing to me, God? Wouldn't you just leave me alone? I'm doing this, God. You should be doing this. God's big enough to hear those complaints, which is good. But y'all, if I was God, it would be really hard to respond to my people in love. It'd be really hard to respond in patience and fatherly affection for someone that would rage against me like that. Thank God he's big enough to handle it though. Now, Keith's gonna preach on this next week. I'm not gonna uh, take anything away from that, but look how God responds to all this. I'm just gonna highlight it here. In chapter six, verses five through seven, listen to how God responds to the rage of his people. God tells Moses, I am the Lord. I've heard their cries and I remember my covenant. He doesn't say I remember my contract. I remember my covenant. I will bring you out from under your burdens. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. God is the mover for his people when we are kicking and screaming against him. That is covenant love. That right there, church, is the definition of God's love for us. God's heard their cries. He's taken their shots. He's heard their blasphemous judgment against his character. God stays calm. He stays loving and gentle. God reminds his people that he's in control no matter how they may think he's working, even if they feel like he's not there or even causing things to get worse. You see, God knows this about us. He knows that we're weak. He knows that we're fragile. We're fickle. We're nearsighted. We only deal with what's in front of us. We don't do good with ambiguity in the gray area of life. We like things very black and white. Yet despite knowing that about us, despite knowing our condition, he loves us with a perfect love. Not because we're holding up our end of the contract, But because he swore by himself, which is the highest authority in the universe, he swore by himself that he would be our God and that we would be his people forever. There's nothing we can do to change that. That's love. That's real covenant love here. I want all of you to hear this question. When you sin, do you feel like God is some ogre in the sky ready to crush you because you're not being perfect? I'm not talking about little sins, but when you really mess up, do you feel like God's just gonna be there to get you? You see, you may have experienced that from a family member or a parent or a loved one who did treat you this way. You may experience situations in life where you are immediately punished for failure. But this is not God. This is not the God of covenant love. This is not the God revealed to us in Scripture. Notice, on one hand, you've got Pharaoh watching the burdens of his people. The people are crying out. In verse 4, he says, Get back to your burdens. Get back to your burdens. But what does the God of the universe do? He comes into earth. He takes on human flesh. He comes into our lives. And when we experience our burdens and we cry out to him, he responds to us very differently than Pharaoh. Hear the words of Jesus from Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. Upon me. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This right here is the story of the entire Bible. From beginning to end, God constantly reveals himself as a God who is out to save and secure and love people who are the least deserving and the most unappreciative. That's the story of the whole Bible. And God proves this by sending Jesus to die for our sins, to die for our disobedience and our rage against him. And it's here in God's covenant love where he says, I will make you mine. I will make you mine. You don't earn this, but because of my grace, I'll send one to die for you. I'll send one to die for you. I will make you mine forever. I will love you more than you will ever know. And in Jesus, through faith alone, God tells us that he will never love us any more or any less No matter what our behavior is, that's covenant love paid for and bought by the person of Jesus who covers our sin, who covers our shame with his righteousness and forgiveness. And it's this love that sustains you when life doesn't go your way. It's this love that sustains you when you see your sin before your face. It's this love that reminds you that God is not against you, but God is for you. It's this love where we see played out with Sarah and Tim. Tim's left the house. Sarah is there on the living room floor. Her sins are before her, her shame's before her. She's undone. Tim stays gone about an hour and a half and he comes back to the house and he's carrying a large duffel bag and doesn't say a word. You can imagine what's going through Sarah's heart and mind at this point. He's gonna start packing up his stuff and he's leaving. But Tim doesn't do that. Tim goes to his bride. He picks her up by the hands. He stares at her reaches into the duffel bag and he grabs a wedding dress that he went out and purchased. He covers her in this wedding dress, wipes away the tears from her eyes and picks her up in his arms and he says, I love you, I forgive you, and you're mine. They're still together at this point. That's covenant love, church that sacrificial love that pays a price. That type of forgiveness and love is costly. And that is exactly what Jesus has done for you. If you trust in Jesus, Jesus has lived in your place and died in your place and has risen again on you and for your behalf. And at the moment you trust in him with all of your sin and brokenness and shame, he comes to you and he covers you In his righteousness, he wipes away the tears from your eyes and he tells you that you are loved, that you are valuable. He promises to wipe away those tears and he tells us he will be with us forever and there is nothing in heaven and on earth or inside of you that will ever be able to snatch us out of his hands. If that's the God you trust in this morning, then rest in that love rejoice in that love. Let that sacrificial covenant love for you overflow in you to help you love God and love others better. Go and tell other people about that wonderful love. But if you're here this morning, you're watching online, and you don't yet trust in Jesus, you feel like, "Ah, maybe I've sinned too much. I'm too far gone. I'm too rotten for God to love somebody like me please hear that you can never out the blood of Jesus. There is nothing you could ever do in heaven and on earth that the blood of Jesus can't cover and can't secure for all of eternity. Your sin may be great, but God's love is greater. And though your sins are like scarlet in Jesus, they will be made as white as snow. And it's that love that allows you to respond to God and hope and trust, and security. When you see your sin, and the world is pressing in all around you, trust in him, let's pray. Father, we are delighted to know how much you love us, and Lord, we're so nearsighted, we forget that regularly. Lord, help us not to just share the gospel with ourselves, but remind ourselves at a deep level, that you delight in us, that you are our God and we are your people, that you have set your love upon us. You have sealed it by the death and resurrection of Jesus and nothing in this world will snatch us out of your hand. Father, let this joy of forgiveness and love cause us to praise you and to sing of your love for us. May it make us better workers and neighbors and and parents and friends uh, more than we could ever uh, draw up in ourselves. Lord, overflow in us, Jesus. Let us sing your praises even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.